All right, if you have uh, your Bible, open and find the Old Testament book of Joshua, chapter 7. Today we're coming to a, a really sobering chapter in the book of Joshua, which is saying something for a book like Joshua, which is quite sobering in and of itself, full of conquest as it is. Today, like I said, uh, it's a sobering, but it's another, I think, well-known, somewhat well-known chapter and passage in Joshua. It's centered on one Israelite man and his family, a man named Achan. We'll read the chapter in just a minute. It's sobering because of how it, I think, how it pulls back the curtains, as it were, um, on the sinfulness of our sins and the wretched consequences. I chose wretched carefully, wretched consequences um, that, uh, that it brings, our sins bring, not only on ourselves, but on people around us. We need to grapple with that. We need to grapple with it not only so that we understand ourselves better, so that we understand the consequences of our sins in a deeper and fuller and more realistic way. But also, I think, so that we, we come to see the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ in a, in a clearer way. Uh, next week is Independence Day weekend, and, the, and, the, and Sunday night, next Sunday night, will be the Auburn Community Fireworks Show. And the fireworks don't start until 8.30 at night. Why? Because any earlier you might hear them, probably won't be able to see them very well. And uh, they, they, they start at 8.30 so that the sun's pretty much gone down by that point. It's going to get progressively darker at, after that point. So the, when the finale comes, you know, it's against a completely dark sky. And you see, because of that, the beauty of the fireworks uh, in, in their fullness. And in the same way, uh, it's only when we understand really and truly and realistically the darkness of our own hearts um, that, that we see the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ and His grace and His mercy for what it really is. And, uh, and, and, and not just understand it in our minds, but feel it deeply in our hearts. I, th I hope that Joshua 7 can help us see and feel some of that this morning. Uh, the chapter sort of unflinchingly lays out in stark terms the sin of Achan and his family, the consequences that it brought, not only on him, but on his family, and not only that, but on the whole nation of Israel. But as I've been saying, I think when, when, we, when we see this chapter that we'll read in just a minute, from the vantage point of the rest of the revelation that, Jesus, that the Lord has given us in the, in, the, in the Scriptures, in the New Testament, the full revelation, we come also to a greater and deeper understanding of what Christ has done for us and marvel at it a little more. I think if there are a couple of, therefore, just to sum that up, I think if there's a couple of takeaways that we can have from the chapter we're about to study, it is one, to see our sin for what it is and take it more seriously, and two, to marvel in grateful praise at our Savior from it. That being said, let's read the chapter um, together. Again, we're in Joshua 7. We'll read the whole chapter. So if you found that place in your Bible, follow along as I read aloud, beginning in verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith 
in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men, men went up from there, from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Again, I told you the other week, if you read, if you read huge chunks of the scriptures all at once, you know, don't just read the, the, the bits, but every once in a while read a huge chunk all at one time, you'll see repeated phrases. The third time we've come across this phrase in Joshua. The first two times, it was the enemies of God's people whose, whose hearts melted uh, at them. And now, because of their sin, it's, it's Israel's hearts who are melting before their enemies. Verse 6, Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies for the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth? What, and what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Get up. <laughs> Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have been, become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up. Consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, for tomorrow, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans, and the clan that the Lord takes by shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerahites were ta was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household, man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to God, to the God of Israel. 
the Lord God of Israel, and give praise to him. And now tell me what you have done, and do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent. Behold, it, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel, and they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters and oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. They brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones and burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. They raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. Let's pray. Lord, every word of Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. This is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. Lord, that's a hard text we just read. Um, Lord, would you give us eyes to see the truth in it? Would you give us minds to understand precisely what it's saying would you then give us hearts to embrace what it is saying even about us even about ourselves not just what it says about Achan would you give us wills to obey whatever it is that you would lead us to do from this text Again, please give us all ears to hear and give me the help that I need to teach and I ask it in Jesus name Amen. All right, so maybe, maybe you saw what I was talking about when I said that even by Joshua's standards, this is a somewhat sobering chapter. And also, I said it, it, it pretty, pretty clearly has its focus, one man, Achan, one theme, the seriousness of sin against God. And so as we think through this chapter, I want us to think about it from three different Angles, none of which will be surprising to you if you've listened to what I've already said. So if you're taking notes, here's where we're going to go with this thing. First, we need to consider the first angle is the deceitfulness of sin. The deceitfulness of sin. And this is not just sin in general. I'm talking sin in my heart, sin in your heart. The deceitfulness of sin. And to see this, we'll not only need to think about what we see of the actions of Achan in this chapter, but also combined with what we have already seen in a previous chapter. Second, you would miss the whole point of this chapter altogether if you did not think about the consequences of sin. The consequences of sin. That is more or less the constant theme of the chapter from the first verse to the very last. But then that's going to set up, I hope, 
for a third and final aspect that I want us to think about and consider, which is the picture of a coming Savior. The picture of a coming Savior, which we need to think about carefully. And I think if we do, we'll come away with a beautiful picture of Christ. So having laid out what I'd like us to see, let's dive into the text and think first about the deceitfulness of sin. So starting at the very beginning, uh, we're told there more than we're going to consider here in this first point, just in verse 1. But it tells us basically what at root issue happened in verse 1. And that is Achan, looking at verse 1, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, Achan took some of the devoted things. Now we're told later in the chapter, remember, that what some of those devoted things were. If you look down in verse 21, when I saw among the spoil, that would be the spoil after the fall of Jericho. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them, and I took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. I think when we combine those two verses, verse 1 along with verse 21, uh, we learn a couple of things, at least I do, about the deceitfulness of sin. Um, and, and not like two things about the deceitfulness of sin that if you were reading the Bible from beginning to end that you would come across them for the very first time here. But the two truths I think about the deceitfulness of sin in this passage have as their root what we see about the deceitfulness of sin as early as Genesis 3. And there's, there's, there's connections between Genesis 3 and here. Let me show you what I'm, I think I see in the text. First, thinking about what we're told in verse 1, the mere fact that Achan, as it says, took some of the devoted things, shows us, first of all, that sin is deceitful because it causes us to doubt what God has clearly said in His Word. It causes us to doubt what God has clearly said in His Word. It's an idiotic thing to do, but it causes us to do that. Right? Do you remember last week when we were studying chapter 6 how I pointed out the awkward, um, the, 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 the awkward distance between the command to shout and the actual shout of the people? Uh, remember how they were, in, when, they, when they were going up against Jericho, remember how they were given these instructions about how they were to do battle against Jericho? These interesting instructions that for, hey, for six days... I want you to march around Jericho, all the way around Jericho, one time. Don't make a sound. Don't talk to each other. Don't make a peep. March around it one time for six days. Go back home. Then on the seventh day, I want you to go and march around it seven times. And on the seventh time, when the trumpets blow and I say shout, I want you to shout. And the walls will come down. Do you remember when we were reading that, though, you get to the point, you've gone day by day, and you finally get to the seventh day. Everybody's been being quiet. You finally get to the seventh day. You get the seventh time, trumpets blow. Shout! How at that, instead of being immediately followed by this shout that you've been waiting on, it's first interrupted. By what? Look back in chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. And the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it 
shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing, a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all its silver and gold, every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the, are holy to the Lord, and they shall go into the treasury of the Lord. And so you see there in verse 16, there's shout, everybody. And it's not followed by a shout until verse 20. So the people shouted. What's in between? You've got these long instructions about devoting everything that you find there to destruction. Not keeping anything for yourself, lest you bring terrible destruction, terrible consequences on yourself, on your family, on the nation. More on that in the next point. But as I said last week, I don't think for a minute that what we just read in verses 17 through 19 happened chronologically between verses 16 and 20. That I, I think when Joshua said shout, they shouted right then and there. So chronologically, verse 20 would come right after verse 16. Shout. So they shouted. Right? But I believe that the author of Joshua, who recorded this event, placed those instructions just at this moment of crescendo in the chapter. So for the reader, when we get to that moment of crescendo and our attention is, is as focused as it will be in this, in this chapter, you have these instructions about what to do, how to devote everything to, to destruction and not to take anything. Like the, the, the prominence of these, to highlight the prominence of these instructions from the Lord. In other words, there isn't a realistic chance in the world that there might have been anyone in that camp who wasn't aware uh, of what they were supposed to do with all the stuff. They all knew. And hence, when Achan took what he took, it demonstrated in Achan... Uh, the same thing we saw in Genesis 3 in Adam and Eve when the serpent approached Eve and said, Did God really say? Did He really say? Their sin, their, Adam and Eve's, started with a doubt of God's Word and so did Achan's. And so very often does ours. And who knows why we do it? For a million reasons we do it. Who knows? We're not even told specifically why in this text that Achan doubted God's Word. Maybe the text of Joshua 7.1 maybe gives us a clue of why Achan did it when it labors, and it does it again like later in the chapter, but like when it labors to tell us precisely who Achan was. The son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zeradah, of the tribe of Judah. I mean... No doubt, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's wanting to know, to know precisely who this guy is. Not the other Achan, this Achan, if there was another Achan. But also you come away from this after, after that, you're kind of tired after the son of the son of the son of the son of the tribe of, you're like, who is Achan? I mean, it sort of feels like you had to drill down really deep just to get a glimpse of this guy among the camp. And maybe Achan thought that too, you know? Maybe he justified it in his mind. I'm just one ordinary guy. It's not like I'm a priest who's going to take some stuff. Nobody knows who I am. Well, they really do. But was it, a really, was it really a big deal if I just take... I mean, it's a, that's a cool coat. That's a cool coat. 
Um, that's a big old bar of gold. For whatever reason, sin is an irrational. And I'm not talking about in Aiken's heart. I'm not talking about in general. I'm talking about in you and in me. Sin is irrational. It's an irrational power in our flesh that tempts us to doubt the truth and the reality of what God has so clearly told us in His Word. In this case, for Achan, that anyone who disobeys this clear command, terrible consequences will come. Sin deceives us into doubting God's Word, that what God says about you and what He says about me and about my sin and your sin, that doubting what that, 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 it, that it is as bad as it is, not in some general sense, but really in my heart. And second of all, that, that sin doesn't just deceive us into doubting God's Word, and it also deceives us in a second way into believing, that it, into believing that it will bring us more joy and more pleasure than it can actually give us. You can see that deceitfulness of sin in play in Achim. Achim, look at, look at the way, again, verse 21 is worded. I saw, I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar. By the way, Shinar, later Babylon. Same place. Shinar is Babylon. Not, not, a, good, uh, not a good place, biblically speaking. But I saw, I, saw, I saw a beautiful cloak from Shinar, from Babylon. 200 shekels of silver. Bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. I coveted and I took them. He saw... It looked beautiful. He took. Kind of reminds you, too, of Adam and Eve in the garden, does it not? So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She saw. It looked beautiful. She took. And Adam, too. But it never provides what it appears to offer. It never. And I don't say that self-righteously. I say that as a fellow sinner with you. It never provides what it claims to offer. Proverbs 20, verse 17. Proverbs 20, verse 17 says, Bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth will be full of gravel. So it is with Achan. What does he do with all his stuff once he has it? He buries it in the ground. I bet that coat is not real pretty anymore. Dirt. He buries it in the ground. He hides it. Where do Adam and Eve go once they have what they thought they wanted? Into hiding. They hid from the Lord. Sin, in whatever form you find alluring, brings shame with its enjoyment. And that's why Genesis 2 makes a point to tell us that Adam and Eve, in, their, in, in Genesis 2, in their, in their God-ordained and God-blessed marital union, they were both naked and there was no shame there whatsoever. Unashamed. Outside those bounds, enjoyment 
together with shame. Exactly how did Achan plan on wearing that eye-catching Babylonian coat? You know, like, dang, Achan, where'd you get that? You know, I've never seen you wear that before, you know. He couldn't enjoy it. Irrational. Sin is irrational. Uh, how is he all of a sudden so wealthy? That's a mighty big bar of gold, you know. How is he supposed to enjoy that? He couldn't have enjoyed any of those things with a clear conscience. And so he hid them. He buried them in the ground. That's exactly what we're tempted to do with all the sin we treasure. We bury it. We hide it. We, we feel... We, why do we hide it? Because we feel it would bring shame if it were out in the open, and yet we still feel shame even while it's hidden. That's because sin deceives us into believing it will bring us joy and pleasure that it cannot give. I don't know what that sin is for you or for me. Or, you know, for you, I know what, mine, what I'm most tempted by. I don't know what you're most tempted by. But whatever it is, the point's always the same. Hence, even in the New Testament, Paul gives an example about the, the, the sinful uh, coveting of riches and wealth. And he says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 that, that it's through this craving of money and to be rich that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. It's, it's, good, that, it's good that we know this about ourselves. It's good that we know this about our sin. All that glitters is not gold. Sin deceives us into doubting God's Word. It deceives us into believing it will bring us joy and pleasure that it cannot give. It initially tastes sweet like honey, but it turns to gravel in your mouth. We need to know that about our sin. We need to know that about our disobedience to the clear Word of God. Without fail, without fail, it will bring with it, now or at some point later, it will bring with it very unpleasant consequences. We need to consider that next from the chapter. I want you to notice something about this chapter. First of all, it hi about the consequences of sin. First of all, it highlights two aspects of the consequences of sin in this chapter. You may have noticed it when we read it. It's kind of unavoidable. One is individual. The other is corporate, meaning more than just you, meaning to the whole group. Individual and corporate. Two aspects of the consequences of sin. But second, I want you to notice how the flow of the chapter moves. It actually moves from the corporate down to the individual. Look again at the very first verse. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and thus the anger of the Lord burned against who? The people of Israel. Achan sinned, all the people held accountable for it and would suffer consequences. We see the same thing emphasized in, in, uh, in verses 10 and 11. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They 
have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. They did it. When Achan did it, they did it. God, God does deal with us corporately. I mean, there's that, that we see that on, on all kinds of levels. It's not like if, if my it's not like if my one of my children grows up and does some heinous thing. It's not like I bear all the the guilt of that, but I, I would have to believe that I, as the one who raised that child and taught that child, I, I feel like I bear some of it. Not all of it. God chooses to deal with corporately. Like, and that may sound funny to our hyper-individualistic ears, but it's true. And it wasn't just true for Old Testament Israel. It, that same principle lies behind what Paul said to the Corinthians. That when one part of the body suffers, all suffer. When one part of the body rejoices, all rejoice. Because we're one body. You ever thought about that? Like we start think we need to, we think about Christianity in terms of you are a Christian. But the most common metaphor in the New Testament for Christians is a body. Not a collection of anything, a one body. Right? We're a corporate thing. And in fact, this same idea lies behind the very gospel itself. If we find this corporate guilt for the sin of another offensive, then we really got a problem with Adam. And we, we must find the corporate peace and righteousness that is granted to us as a, as a body uh, for the righteousness of another, Jesus Christ, also offensive. God deals with us as, a whole, as one on behalf of many. And it's appropriate that at one level we, re, we, we consider the corporate dimensions of our sin first because it is a lie. It's just a lie. That's part of the deception of sin too. We, it makes us irrational. It's a lie that, that sin ever only affects ourselves. We cannot privatize it. Our families suffer. Our churches suffer. Our communities suffer because of the sin of one individual. It's true for all of us. It's appropriate, then, that when we face temptation of any kind, not first to consider how will it affect me, how will it affect my family, how will it affect my church, how will it affect my friends and my close community, and then and only then will you have a fuller understanding of how it will affect you. Israel as a whole lost in battle to tiny Ai. 36 guys died because they can sin. Think about that. All were held accountable. And the central, the central verse in this whole chapter is verse 12. When God says, I will be with you 
no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. If you want to consider how that would have landed on them, we read in Exodus 33, verses 15 and 16. Exodus 33, if you're taking notes, verses 15 and 16, Moses said to the Lord, Moses said to the Lord, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring me up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we're distinct, I and your people, from every other face of the earth? That's the one thing that made them different. God was with them. And he's saying here, I will be with you no more. The consequence is on all the people for, our, for the sin of one person is always heavier than we ever imagined it would be. And it's only after this corporate emphasis throughout the chapter that the search is on for the individual culprit. And the Lord reveals that it's Achan. And at the end of the chapter, Achan, his family, who I believe were probably likely in the cover-up, it's not like they were all out and he's digging a hole. What are you doing? Shh. They were, they were in on it. His family, his livestock, Stolen treasure, they were all devoted to destruction, just as the enemies of God and Jericho were. You might think, this is a really harsh consequence for such a sin. It might, like, this is like a, the death penalty for a misdemeanor. But this, that severely underestimates the seriousness of sin. Not arbitrarily because we think it's so, but because the holiness of God demands it so. The same, and Jonathan Edwards, the 18th century theologian, put it this way, that the same action can bring different consequences depending on who you did it against. Like, if one of my children has a toy gun and goes up to one of his siblings and goes, bang, bang, bang. I'm like, don't ever do that again, and I can punish that, take the gun away or whatever I need to do, to, you know, punish my child. I promise you, if you have a toy gun and you go up to the President of the United States and bang, 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 punishment for you is going to be much harsher than if you did it to one of your buddies because of who it was you did it to. Imagine the infinite God, infinitely holy God, right? You take my Babylonian cloak and sin against me, I'm like, give it back. You're not my friend anymore, you know? You do it against the Lord God. The consequences are infinite. We're not thinking too strongly of sin here. We're thinking too lightly of God's holiness. The central threat of this disobedience is not loss in battle against tiny AI or anything else of the sort, but it's the loss of his presence. Certainly for Achan, if, if, if he truly was an unbeliever, and any other unbeliever now, it, it's the eternal loss of his presence, away from his presence all, for all eternity. But in a more temporal way, even to believers, Right? We don't need to think, well, I'm, I'm a believer, so I'm good. 
Now, we need to come to grips with this, too. Um, in a more temporal way, here and now, this can be true even for believers. Consider, this is what we read in the, in the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. The perfectly wise, righteous, and gracious God does oftentimes leave his own children for a season to experience a variety of temptations and the sinfulness of their own hearts. He does this to chastise them for their former sins or to make them aware of the hidden strength of the corruption and deceitfulness of their own hearts so that they may be humbled. He also does this to lead them to a closer and more constant dependence on Him to sustain them, to make them more cautious about all future circumstances that might lead to sin and for other just and holy purposes so that whatever happens to any of His elect happens by His appointment for His glory and for their good. It's, it's not as if God is a consequence for my sin or, my, or your deliberate disobedience and sin. He abandons us forever. No, that's not what that's saying. But he does, as the confession says, withdraw his hand of immediate blessing for a season to allow us to suffer the consequences of our own sinful choices. And then he uses those consequences for his good purposes, for his glory, and for our good. But before we bring our look at this chapter to a close, we have we've seen the deceitfulness of sin. We've been reminded of the consequences of sin, both corporate and individual, both temporal and, for, for unbelievers, eternal. But to do justice to the whole Scriptures, we need to see very quickly how this chapter provides us a picture of the coming Savior. This won't won't take very long to do, but I do believe that while clearly the overall tone of this chapter is to warn us against sin against God, and without question that is what we need to take heed of from this chapter, be killing sin or it will be killing you, said Puritan John Owen. However, as we, as we do always want to consider the book of Joshua in its own right, but we also want to do that never divorced from the whole canon of Scripture like all of it given to us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I want to show how this chapter maybe does provide us with a, a picture and a reminder of the gospel of grace that we find in Jesus Christ. Simply put, consider the corporate guilt that we saw earlier because of the one man, Achan, and then once he was sacrificed on behalf of the people, the, present, the sin was forgiven, the presence of God was restored to the people along with his blessing. And in a greater way, we come into the, into the world under the corporate guilt of Adam's sin and through the sacrifice of one man on behalf of all the people. But not, not one like unrighteous Achan in a greater way. The, 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 the righteous, sinless Son of God on behalf of all the people. The righteous for the unrighteous, as Peter said. Through his sacrifice, we, the corporate body of Christ, have our guilt removed through faith. And the blessing of God granted to us. Achan is a negative example. He's a negative example of a beautiful, positive gospel grace that we have in Jesus. The Lord Jesus doesn't erase the seriousness of our sin. 
His cross, in fact, actually brings its seriousness into greater clarity. Believers who fall into the deceitfulness of sin will still suffer the consequences in this life, but the eternal debt for our sins has already been paid in full. And every temporal consequence, again, will work together for our good and for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this word, and give us grace now for the next few minutes to perhaps share some thoughts around our tables. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.